All right. Hey, my name is Ajay. I'm the host of the Poetry Slam in Singapore. And I have the one, the only, Chris Mooney Singh <laughs> in conversation with me. The founder of the Poetry Slam in Singapore. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ajay. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you today? Am I catching yeah. you after work or something? Uh, a few projects going on. Still completing uh, things over the weekend, but uh, it's nice to be able to catch up with you. Nice. I'm glad. I'm glad. I am so glad to have you with you. So, Chris, there is a lot, a lot. I've had the unique privilege and pleasure to to get to know you over what was it, two years, three years? Has it been three, three or four years? Three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm now looking I older than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Age is catching up. Well. <laughs> Uh, so we, we have the formal stuff, you know, so I'm just going to I'm going to ramble on a little bit of the formal stuff first, you know, just to get it uh, out of the way. So it is uh, Dr. Chris Mooney Singh. You've got your Ph.D. in creative writing, uh, novelist, poet, playwright, short story writer, publisher, critic, voice actor and musical performer. Wow. And on top of this, now, this is just the artist part of it. And on top of that, you do the organizing of events too so yep. we're looking at touching on all the different parts of that creative ladder every single rung on that ladder up and down moving sideways upside down which way that's been an incredible journey <laughs> did i get that right yeah it's true yep i'm still here <laughs> still here so you I haven't ascended the, uh, fully yet. <laughs> oh wow! So, tell me a little bit about yourself, Chris. Like we have, we have the bio, and because there's no visual on this, I will, I will describe quite the magnificent beard <laughs> that, that is present as well. All right, let's deal with the beard thing. We'll uh, do the beard first. Yes, tell me about yeah. the beard. Well, the beard goes with the turban. Uh, and although I have an Australian accent, I'm a Sikh, a Sikh by choice. Okay. Uh, I became a Sikh in 1989 after about 15 years of interest in Indian and Asian philosophy uh, back in Australia from my early college days. And uh, finally, it all solidified uh, uh, in, through Sikhism after my first journey to India. Okay, wait, hold up. So while you were in college, how old was this? 17, 18. 17, 18. So yeah. we've got um, Irish heritage, Australian, Chris Mooney Singh, young, wild, in college, getting into the Eastern arts, diving into meditation. What got you started on that journey? I think I spent a lot of time by myself as a child. I was oh. quite happy to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you, uh, meditation is something where you look inward, obviously. Uh, but then that has a bearing on how you act in the world. Mm -hmm. So philosophy for me is only really about, you know, how well you can perform whatever it is you're here to do. Uh, and for me, I was always focused on meditation and mm -hmm. poetry, to be very frank, and music, those three things. So I wasn't much interested in, in much else, even though I trained <laughs> formally as a journalist. And, you know, I, I did, you know, kind of express myself through radio arts, um, ABC Radio National. Nice. I worked 
for for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, I was really looking to journey as an artist through my life. Mm-hmm. But I always felt that my kind of art really needs to have a kind of spiritual focus. Okay. Now I don't I don't mean that to be that I want to re- write religious poetry <laughs> that's kind of uh, very. Uh, you know, kind of separate from the rest of the world. Well, but you I know, always... Chris, rock and roll is religion too. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, 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 well, I was there too in my 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 uh, uh, high school years. I had two yeah. rock bands, so uh, <laughs> not a very good lead guitarist, but I did write the songs. <laughs> nice. You know, the singer-songwriter is the vibe of the century. Now, wait, I want to go back to what you said. So you said you had music, you had... Uh, poetry and you had meditation so when did poetry start when did music start for you um i was really writing poetry from you know my from the age of 13 okay. uh, as i began high school and you know i think i i the one of the first pubs i wrote won a school competition uh, <laughs> and uh, i thought that i'd achieved everything after i got my book prize which was in those days the Hobbit. <laughs> you got uh, the Hobbit as a book prize. As a book for prize. Your po- wow, uh, nice. And, uh, and the but uh, having achieved that mm. high Panassian height, uh, I didn't really <laughs> write that much for a while after that, and certainly didn't enter any competitions. Quit while you're ahead, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> even though I'm sort of supposedly with a co-founder, along with Savinda, my wife, who's mm-hmm. Singaporean. Uh, I really don't enter many competitions at all okay. and compete. But I, you know, I think that these are really important things for people to wear ways mm. to express themselves. And But we can get to the Poetry Slam stuff later. Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. We've got time. We've got time. So we've got College Chris Mooney Singh, you know, with um, poetry, music, a guitar strapped to your back, balancing meditation as well. Did you start traveling the world while you were in college, or did that happen a lot later? It was actually a lot later. I was a, 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 late, traveler. a uh, late traveler. A lot of a lot of young Australians mm-hmm. uh, travel straight after school or in during their their university years or just after university. I didn't really get traveling until my early thirties. Okay. So I was a little bit late. So I did a lot of the internal kind of meditation work or the some of the the writing work and I also worked in you know part time in publishing independent in, indie book publishing and so on so I kind of worked and but I was not really uh, I knew I wasn't really cut for the corporate mm. life uh, <laughs> and I never really aimed to go in that direction so I always aimed to be a bit of a dropout I guess <laughs> you, well I mean if you think about it if you do stick with the corporate life is it really moving ahead is it really not dropping out to be in the rat race to choose to endure something like that but getting back to what you were saying you said that you travel late but in the meantime you were doing part-time you were doing uh work you were building up your writing building up your portfolio doing a lot of different kinds of works and all that so what was it like as an artist in australia and in that day and age doing the arts as a freelancer I guess uh, I'm talking about the early 80s. So, mm-hmm. yes, you can count my years through that statement. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I I lived in a place called Balmain, okay. which was associated with the kind of uh, the kind of artist and poets revolution that took place in those 
<laughs> from the seventies onwards. And uh, uh, but I got there also a bit late because I actually did my college years in okay. a country college in a place called Bathurst, and okay. then moved to the Big Smoke. And uh, uh, after all of the all of the cool hippie stuff had already finished up, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always a bit late to the scene, but okay. I, I think that it was okay. We all have our own journey. Um, yeah. You know, I uh, I wanted to travel for many years, particularly mm -hmm. to go to India, uh, which was the sort of interesting focal point of my uh, of my life at that time. Especially through practicing, like many young people in Australia in those days, you know, things like transcendental meditation okay. became. You know, uh, were very available. At one point, forty thousand people, uh, uh, you know, a month were learning TM around the world. I, wow. was, I was one of them, um, and so I was very much into all those things. Uh, and I moved between uh, one or two other kind of yoga-based organizations. Okay, but it was all with a sense of I'm. The East is for me, and I'm not really that much interested <laughs> in Europe and uh, and other places, at least not first. Well, so I've always been oriented towards Asia. Uh, okay. And that's okay. half of my life has now been spent in Asia. Now, I know, Chris, you said that, you know, the 80s, you can guess how old I am and all that. But hearing that story, centering a lot of your early work around yoga, around like institutions that work in that, and doing your own arts on the side as a freelancer. That sounds to me like most typical millennials right now. You know, like that's the cool life of the millennial right now. You know, like you're a yoga instructor, you're doing your work freelance on the side, you're, doing, you're dabbling in the arts, you're dabbling in the creative works, uh, doing part-time work here and there and all that. It is, I don't know, I see so many parallels to what young people today are doing as well, even in some place like Singapore. So it's like, even though that was the 80s, there's still a lot of parallels to what's going on today. So we fast forward to India. What brought you there? Um, first of all, I had a, I, I got a little grant, some money to travel Ooh. and to write. Uh, and uh, so uh, I went to India uh, for three months, and that was in 1989. Nice. And, uh, and I, you did something was, special there, didn't you? Uh, well, at that time, uh, as, when I first got off the, you know, out of the airport at Indra mm -hmm. Gandhi Airport, uh, I got into a bad cab and pretty well got ripped off. I oh, <laughs> ended up in the wrong place, uh, and uh, so I ended up actually uh, staying with a contact uh, that I'd known from Australia. Okay, and that kind of by accident led me to be a part of a community in New Delhi, uh, okay, South Delhi, uh, which was basically like a, a Sikh uh, farm, a, you know, ashram farm, and oh. uh, it was there that I kind of uh, you know got into Sikhism. I, I before that it had been more like mainstream meditation, the Hindu tradition, but mm -hmm. Sikhism for me. F suddenly seemed a very useful and practical uh, take on Indian philosophy because A, it is a bit newer than, mm -hmm. than other ancient forms like Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. Mm -hmm. So it's about 500 plus years old. And I really liked the fact that you were to be, uh, to be a Sikh, you need to be in the world, not of the world, 
but to balance work and uh, life and work and spirituality. So, I mean, to balance uh, you know, spirituality and work mm -hmm. and also to do some service in the world. Okay. Uh, and, I really like uh, that phrase, to be in the world and not off the world. Well, what, do you, what do you understand by that? I'm still well, having a little trouble unpacking that. Well, to, to internally be in your meditative mind and space mm -hmm. uh, and not just to basically drop out like a yogi in a cave, but to then to <laughs> have to get up and go and do your whatever job yeah. you, uh, to, you know, to participate you to in to the participate. world that you do need to be in the world you can't i mean even as much as we adore the solitary there is a participation that it called for almost yes. like a duty and i think that's beautiful wow i think before that 15 years of meditation and so on i thought yeah. that i was destined to be you know uh, to be a, a sadhu or a monk <laughs> frankly and uh, it, it didn't quite work out that way i realized that i needed to experience and embrace you know the you know <laughs> the big bad world but embrace not to, the big bad world yes yeah, but not to lose sort of inner focus okay. and that's not not always easy to do i certainly struggle with it you know like anybody does yeah uh, but i think that the challenge is that we we can't really just drop out of life we have to mm. you know just expand our spiritual course so that becomes the radius that it permeates uh, our, our lives our families our uh, our organizations we're involved with our yeah. sphere of you know so that to to live in a in a, in a good and ethical way without mm. trying to preach to anybody or preach at yeah. anybody by the way uh okay Sikhs are, Sikhs are not kind of religious in that sense that they try to convert <laughs> you to their particular way to their faith you know or their denomination yeah that's yeah. that's but by action you mm. should show you know good uh good things that you could that you that that shows that inner core that is basically uh life affirmative and uh, not like donald trump <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think Donald Trump is a really, really low benchmark on what, <laughs> what it takes to be a person and living and participating in the world today. So you from Australia, now in India, you have this moment of profoundness inside there. Now, there's a duality that existed in you at that time, uh, a crossroads of identity, so to speak. And I know you have this one piece uh, called Eucalyptus or Safaida. Uh, maybe I'll play it a little bit first and then we'll get your thoughts on that. Is okay, that a cool? Sure. sure. All right. Let's go. Safida or Eucalyptus by Chris Mooney Singh. I have seen the gum trees sucking sugarcane fields rising tall and brittle, upstart pundits towering over Haryana and Punjab. The old jungles are gone. Now, eucalyptus does commerce. Oil for Ayurvedic bottles beside sandalwood, neem, and overstacked firewood 
topples, tractor, trolleys, when mad buses swerve. Imported as swamp drains, five-year plans did too well. Now, they root-tap India as six seasons raise them to skinny heights until each one cracks in the wind. Back home, pink galahs lay about in gumnut motels. Here, crested bulbuls prefer power lines. Like courtesans, lovesick for royal perks and perches. They snub impersonators. Bravo. Okay. So, eucalyptus. Everyone knows the image of little koala bears hugging the eucalyptus. And in India, you have it in Ayurvedic medicine. It's such a part of life as well. So... This is a little bit about you as well, isn't it? There's a little bit of Chris Mooney Singh in this story. So tell me, what inspired this? Well, when I lived in India, and eventually I lived in the villages and uh, you know in the rural areas, and I noticed that that eucalyptus trees were everywhere, and I thought, how did they get here? Because it's a native, it's, it's a tree that's only native to Australia. Of course, it's proliferated around the world now, uh, and also in India as part of their five-year plans particularly in the north of India, to drain swamps and things like that. Because when you plant a eucalyptus in a wet area, it will suck all the water out, and, uh, uh, which was part of the intention. But they did it too well, so they tended to also be not good for the local ecology. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the thing that's ironic for me is that yeah. here I am an Australian, here I am, a white Australian, I guess, uh, <laughs> a kind of a white eucalyptus planted yeah. suddenly, you know, in uh, in India. And so I saw that as basically a metaphor for my life. But suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, I thought this was an interesting subject to see how most people, many people in India, are always looking to go away from India. Mm-hmm. They want to migrate. Mm-hmm. They one of the strange things that when people like myself turn up. They, they could not understand why someone like me would want to come and live in India. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a mm. transplanted... Uh, transplanted, grafted into the new ground, the new soil, yeah. sprouting anew. Yeah. And, and you did find a home. ironies between the two places, yeah. And you did find a home in India, didn't you? I, I read this story about a young Chris Mooney Singh. Well, I, I use the word young modestly uh, because you've already... Uh, told as like young 80s to, to late 80s and all that. So, um, and there was a specific instrument that you managed to perform. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What, what was that? That was this. Sure. What uh, was that instrument called? 
It, it's called the the rabab. Now the, the rabab, rabab uh, in India is a is a plucked lute. Mm. Uh, it's uh, related. To, it actually comes from Persia, that part of the world, Central Asia, and was brought through the Islamic invasions from the 11th century into India, and it also became associated with uh, all the you know the Mughal courts. So it is okay. this. A gut string instrument so it was usually the instrument that poetry was used uh behind as a support for poetry <laughs> when it's performed either sung or recited and okay. likewise in the Sikh tradition it became you know the sort of the instrument uh that started the religion as Guru Nanak the founder mm -hmm. of Sikhism uh composed his poem songs uh on his journey three times around India with his Muslim-born companion who played the rabab. Oh, so nice. that instrument disappeared after 400 years. Uh, it kind of got gobbled up by the introduction of the Western... Electric guitar. Well, no, the okay. Western <laughs> harmonium. <laughs> now it's the guitar. Now it's, okay. Yeah. But in those days, it hmm. was the, you know, they... The harmonium was a pedaled instrument that was brought yeah. by the British Raj. They cut the legs off, adapted to Indian music, yeah. and uh, it kind of took over a lot of uh, the string instruments traditions in India. Now, I saw it as an important thing because I felt, well, okay, Sikhism is very much about poetry and music, actually. Mm -hmm. That's part of the why it attracted That's me so much. part of the much. identity that you were as a young boy and then grown now into a man. So poetry yeah. music it had a resonance with you it did indeed and i i was very much enamored by the idea of a of a spiritual tradition that has at its core poetry and music and that okay. instrument if that instrument was gone that to me seemed to be tragic and why whenever i asked people where's the rabab they would say in punjabi gwachkia it means lost gone you know wow and uh, and so I said, the next stupid question to follow was why? <laughs> <laughs> no one had answers to that. And yeah. it took me on a journey that for over at least 10 years, and it finally culminated when I was able to locate the uh, la you know the the, the 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 first or the last extinct extinct uh, uh, you know kind of intact rather yeah rabab of the tenth Sikh guru Guru Gobind Singh because six of the of the of the 10 Sikh gurus there's a lineage after Guru Nanak all mm -hmm. the way up until you know early 1700s mm -hmm. uh, they were poets and they were musicians and they pr shared their philosophy through poetry and music uh, Indian ragas in the classical tradition and the rabab was gone so instead I heard all of this squeaky harmonium uh, which really did not appeal to me as okay. a new Sikh so I thought if I'm going to be a Sikh I'm going to try to trace out that tradition and so I found that instrument uh, in uh, Himachal Pradesh a state above Punjab okay. and uh, was able to then uh, with the help of my 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 wife Savinda uh, to help to revive and create a workshop in our uh, her her home village <laughs> we've got family there and yeah. uh, a space and uh, we tried to bring that back into into play uh, I learned to play the rabab. I was the first Australian, or not just Australian, the first person yeah. uh, to play the rabab after 100 years in the Golden Temple in Amritsar. Wow. Yeah. You got invited to play in the Holy Temple. 
yeah, I was. I spent about a week or two weeks uh, accompanying one of the resident musicians there. There's a whole shift change of them for <laughs> 24 hours a day. Music is powerful, and poetry and music in Sikhism is central to how they worship, how they celebrate life. And but everything was was done with the harmonium. I thought this is horrible, you know. So I learned to play the rabab because I could play the guitar and I could mm -hmm. adapt. I, I sort of on the job training learned my way <laughs> to uh, be able to picking up a new instrument. What is this? A, a <laughs> professional bard, you know, the traveling bard, you know, you pick up a new lute uh, called the rabab and then you're able to just pluck it away and then you figure it out. And with the guidance of their resident musicians uh, telling you about their scales, how it's played. Did you also learn the language? Uh, to, to perform any pieces or were you the musical accompaniment? What, what was that like? Uh, yes, I, I, I taught myself basic Punjabi and also the, the religious version of through, through the, the, the Sikh Holy Scripture, mm -hmm. the Guru Granth Sahib. Uh, so I could read, you know, I can read, you know, the, the traditional Punjabi Gurumukhi letters and I can, and I performed in that role, even I was actually employed in a couple of different Sikh <laughs> temples as the resident <laughs> musician and sang, you know, morning and evening and at special occasions, funerals, weddings, blah, blah, blah. You, you so, know, you got to add that into the bio. You got to add that into the bio. What <laughs> <laughs> a bad story, really. <laughs> yeah. But no, I was, I, I, it was part of my journey uh, yeah. artistically and spiritually. As you meant, as I mentioned before, I felt mm. that, that, Art for me needs to have some sort of spiritual uh, integrity to it. Okay. Not that not that it has to preach that mm. you know kind of brand a, a particular brand of it, but the mm. internal idea of spirituality, not just religion, but mm. you know, a deeper core of wisdom, let's say. So that's really part of been core to my whole life's journey uh, with writing as well and music. Okay, now I'm hearing the words. But I'm going to play you something because this is, is taking the journey uh, into Singapore. And I want you to remember the words that you said because you said, uh, core of your being is inside <laughs> this. So we're going to go into uh, living in the land of the durian eaters <laughs> to better understand the core of Chris Mooney Singh. Durians! 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 Perhaps the green spiky ball without its chain is the prototype of the weapon I once held and my suit of armor dream was. Durians! The smell of the D24 is overpowering. The taste of the D24 causes memory dysfunction. Durians! People of the Earth! Living in the land of the Durian Eaters is living in the land of the Lotus Eaters. There is a problem with the creamy ooze of time. Durians! I was forced to eat durians from an early age. Thus I have clairvoyant powers. Has the durian chemical been pulling the strings of my cerebral cortex? Yes, of course. This is why the CIA is interested in Durian technology. 
In Durian season, there are more UFO sightings and alien abduction reports. It is a rising issue of some concern, said the Prime Minister last week. Durians. People of the Earth, we should seriously consider that extraterrestrials are among us. Our sources have revealed that Durians are part of some interstellar narcotics scam. But who exactly is behind this? <laughs> ah, Durians. My flesh is burning and turning inside this spiky spaceship. Ah, my tropical stink is the rankness of force-fed Durians. I have these cravings. I have vision. Some love Durians. Others hate durians. Last week, a government spokesman issued a statement saying they are unable to lift their ban of durians on public transport. Yes, it is too late for me. But I must tell you what I know. Durian lovers are seed souls from another star system. We of the Earth cannot stomach durians. People of the Earth, beware the market stall. The eyes of the durian seller reveal an alien peddling for addicts. Durian addiction is on the increase. This means the sad decline of the earthlings. When public buildings are designed like durians, the invasion of the durians will be complete. Next time, a sweet, soft durian tempts you, think of the future of poor, poor planet Earth. The choice is yours. You have been warned. Durians? Durians! Durians. Yeah, you know, that, that's that got to be like the the intro to anyone who's just walking into Singapore. <laughs> Well, I did feel like the alien at that time. That's for sure. <laughs> but strangely enough, the very yeah. first fruit that I ate in Singapore was a durian. And Welcome to I was, Singapore. Uh, yes, it was, uh, and I loved it. I fell in love with durians uh, from that time is on. Intoxicatingly brilliant, the durian, and I—I I don't know why. Everyone who says they don't like it, I feel like they're the people who haven't properly tried it without the. The stink of uh, public opinion thrust upon them. Well, you I know. think that I mean, I, my explanation is that the, the aliens once landed here. They interbred with the local people. They brought with them their interstellar fruit. Uh, <laughs> they, those that have kind of are related to aliens, love durians. But the earthbound who are here did, never <laughs> took took to durians are the opposite. <laughs> My oh. wife is, doesn't oh. like durians. <laughs> so you're saying that everybody who likes a durian is a little bit out of this world? Oh, of course. Okay. Of course. <laughs> durians. We're not bound by this earthly realm. Indeed, yes. <laughs> just waiting to ascend further in our durian spaceship, you know, just out of the esplanade. The two halves would collapse into one, and then the, the giant orb of spikes would ascend into the sky, bringing us back to the motherland. Uh, that's. <laughs> I but, think I wrote that around the time that yeah. the grenade was uh, was was actually you know, was built and you know became a thing. Yeah. 
Nice. But that's 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 remarkable, right? So at a time when they were building something like the Esplanade, that architecture, people are building things around, and you're looking at this, you're living in Singapore, you're seeing the climate, you're seeing the land change around you, and you're responding through art, you know, you're responding through poetry, you're responding through song, you know, and I think that's absolutely brilliant. Now, to, to just tie into the Singapore story, because... Uh, I am from Singapore, so welcome. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. You've been here longer than I probably than I have been uh, alive in Singapore. Uh, but while you were here, you brought the poetry slam to us, and uh, I remember we've talked about this before. And 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 you were in the U.S. You were couch surfing with the coolest dudes, uh, the people who founded the poetry slam uh, in the U.S. Who was that guy again? Mark Smith. Mark Smith. So you were couch surfing with Mark Smith, going around, checking out all the different spoken word events going out, his new, different, uh, unique concept on a performance-based poetry that was timed with no props, no songs. It was just a person standing in front, performing their work. What spoke to you about that? Because, you see, back in my earlier days in Australia, I had... uh, I always had a feel for performance uh, as well as, you know, the written text and, uh, you know, did some, you know, I did start some spoken word activities back then. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I decided to move to Singapore, uh, I'd already kind of, let me say, made a commitment to live in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but my version of that was still going to have to be kind of artistically. And, uh, Mm. and I, you know, uh, I felt that that things poetry slam was a way to actually bring poetry to a wider audience. I'm not opposed to any kind of poetry. I love all mm-hmm. kinds of poetry, and I'm not, um, you know, an apostle of spoken word at all in that sense. I'm a, yeah. I just believe in poetry. But things like poetry slam help to break the ice for newcomers who may not ever want to go to a thing called a poetry reading. Yeah. <laughs> they want to come to have fun and why yeah. not do that with poetry but the poets have to be fun or yeah. the form of the event has to be fun that's yeah. what a poetry slam is uh, you know you write the poems you compete in a fun competition someone's a re- you know kind of given the title for the night yeah. um like you know five judges in the audience like olympic judges holding up their scoreboards uh, at a you know diving event in the Olympics, uh, and you know they're poet ten, nine for the night, two, for one, the night. <laughs> and next day, yeah, it's over, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it should be. We should not take ourselves so seriously about this winning and losing thing. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. I mean that that's what I absolutely loved about it. I remember I just graduated from university. I've uh, just started working uh, in public transport of all things. You know, I was like. Uh, a young uh, engineer working in SMRT. And I'm sitting here in Blue Jazz Cafe. I'm listening to poets go out one after the other. I am laughing my eyes out. I'm thinking, whoa, you know, like I performances that I never thought could come out of a stage in Singapore. And it, there was just this realness about it, you know, like it was as if this person was just talking to me. There was so much emotion involved. It was funny. It was sad. It was happy. And it just was an entire ride. And I remember at the end of it, I was I came back like one time, two times, three times. And I was just like, whoa, you know, like I knew at that point that I, I did want to be a part of this in some way. 
So like I remember like after one of the slams, I was just like, hey, Chris, so, <laughs> you know, I do this thing on the side where, you know, like I, I, I do a little bit of talking and stuff like that. Um, if you do need a host, you know, just let me know. And you were saying that, hey, yeah, you know what? Uh, we do look we do need a few extra people to help around. Would you be interested? And bef- and then boom, we yeah. were, <laughs> we were doing the Singapore Poetry Slam. But Absolutely. before I, the slam happened in Blue Jazz Cafe, I remember you, you were telling me that it happened in Zouk. Yes, we started the slam in 2003. Uh, uh, we thought, well, let's do, let's do it different. Uh, usually it happens in libraries or in little <laughs> bookshops with three poets meet with five, with three friends and, uh-huh. uh, and they, you know, they all read. And you want to do completely opposite. What is the furthest thing from a library that you could do? You know, quiet books only to dance floor, disco lights and loud music. Indeed. And, <laughs> you know, actually, that's how it happens elsewhere in the world. In yeah? America, Britain, Australia, people do perform in these places, uh, yeah. poetry. And it's become much more so, you know, in, over the years. But uh, I just thought that give it a shot and it turned out to be the right thing even though i had to struggle with some of the early poets who were helping to organize and i said no we uh, because zook wanted to have a cover charge oh. and uh because you know that's their branding right yeah uh, they allowed us to have their cover charge it was then it was 20 dollars an entry i think and they got free drinks two free drinks or something yeah so they gave us a a, a bad off night a tuesday night <laughs> and a ten dollar <laughs> entry fee uh before their uh airport crowd would come in <laughs> oh shit okay the, you know, <laughs> pilots and the and and so on the pre-show slot you know yeah so uh but you know the first slams that we had i think we had 120 people at wow. it it was a big a big event and it kept on happening like that even to the point where uh you know the writers festival of that year also uh, invited uh i had some hand in that uh, mark smith to be uh, a part of you know the festival that year they had their version of the of the slam which was basically a slam which he hosted <laughs> uh, also and they did it at zook and they also copied us by covering having a cover charge <laughs> i think it was the first paid literary arts gig in singapore nice and i think that has been a positive thing because i think that giving you know as you go to the theater you pay yeah. money people expect value from that yeah. likewise poets weren't used to doing that they didn't kind of do it in that kind of that sort of uh not saying that they weren't serious but they yeah i think that in the art space it's healthy to support the art with things like a cover charge so yeah. we actually haven't changed our cover charge since that early day <laughs> still ten dollars yeah. it's never really been about the money yeah. uh but it's been about giving value to the and honestly like one that was one of the biggest things that i took away from the slam because everywhere i was seeing people doing there were there were free shows there were there were shows with no cover charges they were just doing the arts for free and it always puzzled me doing the arts for free because there's so many newspaper articles. We have different people in Singapore saying that it is a luxury that we cannot afford, you know, and they, they use words like this. And when I thought about it, I realized that why would they say that it's a luxury that they can't afford? Well, when that was Lee Kuan Yew who said that. Lee Kuan Yew who said that. And mm. when they do say things like this, it, it sort of makes you question, like, why do they feel like it's not something that is something that we can afford? 
And for, for leaders of a country to say something like that, it would mean that they were paying the money. And that's when I realized, you know, like you had a lot of these arts organizations who were funding most of the arts. And they would fund the arts and those events would happen free of charge or at a very, very minimal cover rate. So it was good because like you had money, artists had money to, to develop and do the arts. But at the same time, it always begged the question that, oh, you can only do the arts if you got the funding. That means there was no real demand for it. It was a charity. I mean, it, the intent may not have been that way, but to me, it always appeared as if it was, in a, some sense, a charity. You know, So to find ways where you could capture an audience, to really find a captive market and get them invested in an idea of a fun activity and get them willing to, to pay for it, it, it was those kind of baby steps that made that paved the way for sustainable arts organizations. You know, you show that, look, uh, you don't have to get funding, but you can still run your show because you have enough people paying you in ticket charges. And that adds credence. It adds credibility to that organization. And I remember being very, very impressed that, you know, wow, you know, like you're running these things, you're maintaining a space. And a lot of it is through programs that you're running, workshops that you're running. Uh, you do still apply for the grant money because every little bit helps. But that active step to, to make sure that you are self-sustainable, that I think is what all arts organizations should do, you know? Like you find an idea, you you hold on to that idea, you make it your idea, and you you charge people to come for it. And you're not charging them because like, oh, you know, we need to make the money kind of a thing. But it is, look, uh, We've done good work and we're proud of that work. This is what we feel the work is valued at. If you enjoy it, if you feel that you're going to have fun, come join us, you know, and people do turn up. And I remember for the Poetry Slam, it's always a different crowd every night. And and I think that's a lot of what we need to see a little bit more of. I feel I need to see a little bit more of. I'm still a newbie to the whole art scene, so I may not have seen... Uh, as much as you have or as much as some of the people who might be listening into this <laughs> may have. But a lot of what I see is that we're so willing, like as artists, we're so willing to just, you know, like, oh, okay, we get the grant money, we do the work. But to find a way to 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 bridge that gap, because I remember like in our earlier conversations, uh, you went down to the schools, you know, you went down, you taught the poetry slam in the schools, you got them interested and invested at a young age. Children have so full of ideas, so full of energy, and you taught them the power of performance poetry, they get hooked. And once they come out of the schools, they're looking for opportunities to perform. And then you have stages like the Poetry Slam where they would be like, hey, you know, like I meet new people. I find out what other people are doing. I can share my work. I'm on a stage. Uh, I improve my public speaking. I improve my confidence. And it also like a lot of times tends to be a little bit of therapy as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that you know? was the, the intention is to make it serviceable and less uh, kind of, uh, how can I put it, you know, uh, poetry, even the word poetry is foreign to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but really, it's just a, a, a personal expression in well-chosen words. Uh, and so when in 2004, we got a bit of funding from Mika, the, then the, you know, that was the name of the of, of the department, mm -hmm. uh, combining, you know, to be able to use uh, some entrepreneurship and we put poetry into the school system. And uh, it was, it's been very popular. Yeah. Uh, even to the point now where, uh, you know, and not only the students who benefit, but also we help to employ a lot of uh, new artists, new poets, yeah. help them to improve their craft uh, through our lit up 
uh, festival, yearly annual festival that's running for about eight years. Yeah. Uh, and then also to give them some employment. I think that those things, to me, make it uh, make it a, a part of, of, of a society and much more so than just, you know, taking, you know, the um, NAC's dollar, which is important yeah. still. I'm not saying that, yeah. that they should not support, yeah. but ultimately it has to come from within uh, yeah. And also to be sustaining, it has to have a sort of inner, inner basis for it to exist, not because it's just being, you know, kind of funded. Uh, yeah, which I think is what you are starting to say. Tying into your inner philosophy as well, you know, like who you yeah. are spiritually as a person, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I think that basically in Singapore, I was I've been able to fulfil my long-standing desire, which has been to live, uh, live through my art, whether it's through publication, performance, entrepreneurship, or teaching, or whatever associated thing. So uh, I've been able to live full-time with my wife, working together full-time with Word Forward, through Word Forward, uh, you know, here in Singapore. And, uh, you know, that's been a, a fulfillment. So I think that I've managed to tick a couple of boxes. You know, Singapore has <laughs> been good to me in that regard. <laughs> And, has, uh, and we have to sort of yeah. try to give back as well. So I, yeah. I, we always sort of try to make it available, make Poetry Slam as this platform where young people can actually start the, the process of discovering themselves artistically. Yeah. And I adore, like for me, the past four years have been an incredible journey. Uh, I've seen the Poetry Slams. I've seen the Lit Up Festivals. I've seen the Causeway Exchange Slams. So you went to Malaysia. You brought the slam there. You got a little community started over there. And then we have this collaborative cross-Causeway Exchange. Uh, young Malaysians, young Singaporeans coming together, sharing their works, sharing their stories and learning from each other. And I remember about uh, two years ago, 2018, we did the very first uh, Asia-Pacific Lit Up. And you brought in people from the Philippines, from Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore, all the poets all together. You managed to get the funding to, <laughs> to do that. Bring them all here, a three-day uh, lit-up festival with uh, digital arts, performance arts, uh, theatrical arts, mimes from Bali, Indonesia. <laughs> Those are my favorite. In fact, it, it was a focus on the oral traditions of the region in particular. So we oh. had, you know, like uh, Balak Tasan, which is a sort of from the poetry form from the Philippines and yeah. all different kinds of things. But yes, that's the focus. So always been the literary arts, but with the other arts crossing over. And I crossing think that's over. always healthy, healthy <laughs> to, to cross over. <laughs> cross over. And it's always with people. And that's that's what I've really loved about the slam. It's at the end of the day, it's always about people. When two when different people meet and they share their stories, new stories form, you know, like grafting onto each other, like a little eucalyptus tree, you know, growing from one land, displaced into another, yet still growing, building into the environment there. And then you you get something different, you get something new, and you become a part of a slightly different culture. And hopefully, it's a better and a nicer culture and a world. Well. All this while, uh, it's I was completely keeping my eye off the clock, and we are uh, <laughs> we may have taken a little bit more time uh, than we have. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. I've had a lot of fun. Uh, 
there's a lot more stories that we'd love to share uh, with everyone. But if you do want to hear these stories, and if you do want to hear these stories, uh, come on down to the Poetry Slams. Uh, do find us on Facebook. Just look for Word Forward SG or the Writer Center Singapore. You would find us. Uh, sign up look up for our next event uh we're doing some stuff with uh some students from the ites uh in the next week but uh, beyond that we'll keep you posted on the next live poetry slam and you might want to take us out with uh the song that i wrote back in those days so it was the theme song of the poetry slam theme song the poetry slam so to sign us out as we fade to black now before we do that i want to give a big shout out uh to kai and to deborah thank you so much for letting us be a part of the shangri-la art podcast you guys are the best hope you i hope you guys survive you know like 12 noon to 12 midnight is not easy <laughs> so hang in there uh drink lots of water stay hydrated this is the poetry slam theme song signing us out have a great night just William Shakespeare still unheard In a past life you swallowed a singing bird You've been squawking since you were 16 But you still haven't cracked the music video scene So why don't you sign up for the slam And serve some metaphysical bread and jam Some gangster rap or something cool and serene And share your bomb like the blood of the lamb Singapore slam, Singapore slam, Singapore slam. Singapore slam, Singapore slam, Singapore slam. Well, maybe you've discovered the SARS vaccine. Or you just want to travelogue where you've been. Or maybe you found the burning hands of love. Or that hidden door through the sky above. So why not come and sign up for the slam? With your superhero bombs, kapow, kabam! Let's have fun, let's rant, let's be absurd! In the spotlight of the spoken word It's poetry and it's dance It's leaping off the bus to take a chance It's comedy, it's theater and it's mime It's music spinning us out of, spinning us out of, spinning us out of time at the Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam. The Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam. At the Poetry Slam Cabaret. Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam, Singapore Slam.